All right, well, we're moving on to the second session, Beholding the God of Redemptive Covenantal Love. You know, a lot of people think that the love of God in the Bible is one thing that is probably expressed best in John 3.16. And, of course, this is the love of, the, uh, love of God in the Bible. There's no doubt about it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the universal love of God for all people. It's very clear. You know, some uh, Reformed people try to limit John 3.16 to the love of God for the elect. But I don't think it works because three verses later, John 3.19, light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness rather than the light. Well, this is not the world of the elect then, isn't it? Is it? Because this is not, if it's the world of the elect, then light comes into the world and they accept it. They, 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 they cherish it. But no, this is light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. So I don't, you know, world has to be, in John 3.16, the whole world. God so loved the whole world that he gave his son. A precious truth, glorious truth, but it is not the whole truth of the love of God in the Bible. There's another sense in which God loves people, and that is the sense in which he loves his own. And it is a selective, targeted, special, saving love. The name that I've given, it, given to it here is his covenantal, re- redemptive covenantal love. The love that God has to actually save a people for himself that he has pledged himself to This love of God in the Bible, in fact, is the predominant sense of the love of God. The universal love of God is there, but it is the minor note in terms of the Bible's teaching on the love of God. The major note sounded is the special love that God has for his own. You might think of this love as familial love, a love that one has in his or her own family. Uh, the, the, the love that you have for your children, do you, do you love other kids too? Well, of course you do, but you love your kids in a special way. My goodness, I just finished paying for college for mine, you know, and I'm not going to do that for yours, you know. I'm just, it's, don't, don't look at me, I'm not going to do it. You know, you love your own in a particular way that you don't love, every, even though you love the others, but you love your own in a particular way that you invest yourself in them, care for them, provide for them in ways that are not true for others. So you might think of this as a familial love. Now think, think for example, of a few verses I have here at, at uh, Redemptive Covenantal Love. Ephesians 1.5, you might remember Paul begins in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So he begins with this extolling of the Father for all the blessings that he brings to us. All, all of them come, through, come to us in Christ, Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now listen, verse 5, in love he predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself, to the praise of the glory of his name. So here is the love of God that is tagged to adopting us as his own children. I mean, when you see that, you realize, boy, if... Any of you out here have adopted children. You realize what this means in terms of your targeted, your special devoted love and care for that child who, who before they were adopted, 
had no special love from you, but now because they are your adopted, they receive everything from you. This is God's love for us. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. So when, when was God's decision that we would be his adopted children? When did that take place? In eternity past. I mean, back to verse, verse 4. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So here, here's the love of God that was established before he even created the universe. For you and me, if you, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, you are among those whom he chose before the foundation of the world, whom he predestined, he destined in advance to have this particular uh, position of the adopted children of God. And, wh- and what moved him to do that, according to Ephesians 1.5? In love he predestined us, okay? Or, or consider Romans 9.13. I mean, it's just in your face. You know, it is a very bold statement, but it's in the Bible, isn't it? I mean, we're not making this up. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now, this is quite a remarkable statement because Paul makes clear that the basis for the love of God for Jacob and the hatred of God for Esau has nothing to do with the merits of Jacob or Esau, respectively. I mean, in the two verses previous, before the two were born, referring to these two twins, now get it, they're both from the same mother, right? You know, so this is not, it's not even like Isaac and Ishmael. You know, that have different mothers, both from Abraham, but from different mothers. No, here is one, two, two twins from Rebecca. Before the two were born, before either had done anything good or bad, that the ch- purpose of God might stand according to his choice, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, as it is written. Malachi 1, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So you realize, before the two were born, that is... Uh, irrespective of anything that they would do, not based upon any kind of moral disposition of their lives or actions that they would perform or choices they would make. Totally apart from that, God favored Jacob, not Esau. And, and by that chose the younger rather than the older. Esau was the firstborn of the two, of the twins, Jacob the second, and he, by, because he's God, he's God, he can do that. He doesn't have to follow the rules of primogeniture. You know, the, the favoring the firstborn. He can take the secondborn and make it the object of his love. So Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And if you wonder, does that have anything to do with the salvation of Jacob and Esau, respectively? Read Malachi 1. I mean, the, the question that introduces this right at the beginning of the chapter is, have you loved us? You know, how, how have you loved us, God? And God's response is, I've loved you, but I've hated your brother Esau. And furthermore, Edom, Edom, the the people from Esau, I will bring them down forever, God says. So here is the saving love of God for Jacob, who doesn't deserve it. I mean, look at Jacob. What a scoundrel he was. You know, really, he was a deceptive man in so many ways. Not, not, Not exemplary. But apart from anything that he would do, God chose Jacob, not Esau. Jacob have I loved 
Esau have I hated. I mean, this is the special love of God for some. Now, Ephesians 5 is my favorite verse to go to because you really do sense this familial love, this love, love that you have within your own family uh, that God wants his people to understand is his love for us. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, when, when you see that, you realize, wow, this is the model that we are to have, husbands are to have with their own wives, is the love that Christ has for the church, a love in which he gives himself for her in a way that will sanctify her and save her in the end, that will make her holy and blameless. You know, it's in, interesting, holy and blameless, that phrase is used in Ephesians 1.4, God chose us, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. And Ephesians 5.27, that we will be holy and blameless by the work of Christ. So Christ accomplishes what, what the Father ordained and elected us to be. Why? Because of his love for us, his bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, here, here is why it is so important to get this. Imagine if I went home after this conference, you know, my, my wife, Jody, we've been married 33 years and she sometimes travels with me. She's not here this weekend, but so I go, I go home after this weekend and say, honey, it's so good to see you. I love you so much. Now, suppose in her mind, just, just imagine this for a moment, in Jody's mind, when she hears those words, honey, I love you, the only thing that she can think, the only concept of love she has is universal love of God equally distributed to all people. What would that do to her understanding of my statement, honey, I love you? If the only conception she had was universal, equally distributed, impartial love for all people. It would absolutely ruin it, wouldn't it? So what she hears is, you love me the same way you love every woman you see. That's what she hears. Not true, Jody. Don't you understand? I have given myself to you. I care for you, want to invest in you, want to provide for you in ways that are not true for any other woman, any other person, because I love you. Now, this is what happens with the people of God. If the only conception we have of the love of God is universal, impartial, equally distributed love for all people, and we hear God say, I love you, what do we hear? Oh, it's just the same with everybody. Oh, no, no, don't you get it? I love you. And I have committed everything I have for your well-being. I have given my son for you because I love you. Okay, I want us to see this in an amazing passage of Scripture. The targeted, selective saving, covenantal love of God that he has for his own people. Turn with, if you would please, to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. Let me read these opening verses, and then we'll work through them. Verses 1 through 7, just so you can have the, the passage in mind. I'm reading, by the way, from the New American Standard translation, in case you're wondering. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. 
I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Well, this is an amazing passage, an amazing depiction of the love of God that he has for his own people. Now, obviously, this is Israel, the nation of Israel. And by extension, it comes to us who are the people of God, those whom he chose as he chose Israel, those whom he chose to be his people. And But we see here this display of the love of God for Israel that that is manifest in a remarkable way. So let's look at this together. Verse 1. God's redemptive covenantal formation of his people established. God's redemptive covenantal formation of his people established. Look at the words that are used in verse 1 of Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord, your creator. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. I, I, I'm looking at my own notes here. No, notice the but now. This, this is a, 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 an Ephesians 2-4 moment. Like we had in Isaiah 6 a, a minute ago. But now signals that something has changed. Now look at the previous verses. Just go back in chapter 42 and look at the previous verses uh, and how God describes the people. Verse 23, who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen? Who, who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and in whose ways we were not willing to walk, whose law they did not obey? So he poured out on them, on him, the heat of his anger, the fierceness of battle, and it set him aflame all around, and he did not recognize it, and it burned him, but he paid no attention. So the idea here in the context leading up to 43 verse 1 is, his people, Israel, though God had favored them, showed them so much kindness, they rebelled against him, turned from him, became idolaters, and they were now incurring the judgment of of God upon them. They were receiving what they deserved, divine judgment. Now, my friends, it is amazing. But now, in verse 43, verse 1, signals this principle, that the final word of God to his people, amazingly, the final word of God to his people is not a word of judgment, but a word of restoration salvation, kindness, and forgiveness, uh, 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 bringing them into a flourishing relationship with him. And when, when you see that what they deserved is the judgment of God, but what they get is his mercy and kindness, you revel in the grace of God that you realize is totally undeserved. 
totally unmerited and can only be explained by the fact that God has a love for them because, we'll see this more in a moment, he brings judgment on other people, which is his final word to them. Did you hear that? He brings judgment on others, which is his final word to them. But his final word to his own people is not a word of judgment. It is a word of restoration. So, verse 1, but now, thus says the Lord. Notice the name of God there, Yahweh. If, if you see Lord in all caps in your translations, it is always a reference to the name Yahweh, which God gave to Moses in Exodus 3. When, when uh, Moses said, when I go back to the people of Israel and they ask me, who sent you? What, what shall I say? And God said, tell them, I am sent you. This is the God, I am for you. I am the God of covenant commitment to you. I am the God who has pledged myself to you. It is the covenant name of God to his people, whereby he pledges himself for their good, their salvation. This is why, in the end, Israel is going to be saved. In Romans 11, why Israel? Why, why not the Babylonians as a whole? Why not the Egyptians as a whole? Because he chose Israel to be his people. Remember, remember Deuteronomy 7? Of all the peoples on the earth, I chose you though you were so small, though you were so insignificant. I did not pick you because you were the greatest and the most glorious. I chose you because I, what is it in Deuteronomy 7? Because I loved you. So the love of God for his own people is the basis by which his final word to them is not a word of judgment. It is a word of salvation and restoration. And he has covenanted himself to them. So thus says, but now thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Now look at how he describes himself. Thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Those words, those Hebrew words that are used there bring to mind Genesis 1 and 2. They are terms used of creation that takes place in Genesis 1 and 2. But he is not speaking here of that Genesis 1 and 2 creation. Rather, he's speaking of the creation of this as his people, of, of this, 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 these people as his own, creating them, forming them to be his own people. So he uses that creation language to invoke the idea of I made you to be who you are. You, you, you cannot account for you being the people of God because of something you did. Any, any more than the universe can, can, can say, hey, it's because of who we, what we are is the universe that we exist. Oh, no, it's because God created you out of nothing. So in a similar way, God is the one who formed this people. He is the one who did it. It has nothing to do with anything they did. Boy, this is so important to see, isn't it? So many Christians belittle the, 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 the sovereign grace of God by thinking ultimately they are a member of the family of God because of what they did. Oh, no. It is what God does that brings us into his family. And this is, this is the language he used there. I created you. I formed you. And so in verse 1, he goes on to say, as his own people, he has pledged them to save them. So he not only describes himself as creator, but verse 1, do not fear for I have redeemed you. Notice how closely connected here 
that sense of creation is to redemption. It really is creating them to be his own people, which requires what? He has to redeem them. He has to save them in order for them to be his people. So in this sense, the creation of Israel as his people requires the redemption of Israel as his people, which God does. And then these tender words that he says at the end of verse 1, I have called you by name, you are mine. Now we have two, two grandchildren, and our second was just born a few months ago. A little Gavin is his name. We didn't know what his name was going to be until Gavin was already born. And, uh, and our daughter and her husband told us what his name was. And, uh, you know, sometimes you hear a name. Now, we like, we like that name. And sometimes you hear a name and you go, ooh, I don't know. Really? Is that? But, but you know what? You, you may not like it, but if you're not the parent, you don't have any say in this, right? Yeah, because parents have the responsibility and, and the authority to do this because they have ownership. They, they, they have rights over this child. Okay, when God named, I have called you by name, indicates he has rights over us. We are his. He names us. But, but it is a tender thing. I mean, goodness, a parent naming the child is a tender thing. It's so intimate. It's so personal. And this is what God does. I have called you by name. You are mine. To name it is to indicate your authority over it, your uh, jurisdiction over it. So I, you, you are my people. I created you. I redeemed you. I formed you. You are mine. Okay, let's move on to verse 2. We see the, the redemptive covenantal commitment to his people expressed. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. <clears throat> I mean, those images there of water and river and fire are all symbols of destruction and harm, of what, 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 could, what could bring devastation into the lives of these people. But God wants them to know, I will be with you in this. You, you, you will not be harmed because I will be there with you. I am the God who not only created you and formed you, but I have committed myself to you. I am for your good, says God. So you can know that you will receive from me my watchful gaze, my, my attentive oversight of your life because I am committed to you. You are my people. I mean, this is a really poor analogy, but I remember times when my two girls, we had two girls, we have two girls, and when they were little, you know, at the playground. And they weren't real adept yet at the monkey bars and climbing stairs and stuff like that, you know? Well, goodness, I'm dad. I am with my girls, right? And at a split second, am there, as I was a few times, to catch before you hit the ground or, or steady, steady a, a, a step up the stairs or that sort of thing. I mean, it's really a, a poor analogy because we fail as human beings who are with our children. But this is God who is with us, who never fails, who always sees exactly what needs to be seen, who always has the power to do exactly what needs to be done, which means, doesn't it, that we're not spared from the fire or, the, or the, the water that comes in one sense, 
In one sense, God brings it into our lives. We'll see more of that in the next session together, the sovereignty of God. But he spares us from any ultimate harm. It cannot in the end harm us. It cannot in the end ruin us. It cannot because God will be with us to ensure that what happens will be for our good. So this is his commitment to his own people. Just notice one more thing in verse 2, and that is how frequently the I and you are stated in this, how personal it is. Let me read the first two verses again, and I'm going to stress especially the yous that are there, just so you can hear this. This is not God's general statement that he makes to all the world, all the people in the world. This is to his own people. Listen again, verses 1 and 2. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters... I will be with you through the rivers. They will will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. You get the point here. This this is the particular commitment that God is making to his own people. He is not applying it generally to all the nations, all the peoples of the world out there, but rather to his own people. My, what commitment God has made to these people, the people of his creating, of his forming, of his redeeming, those whom he has called by name as his own people, he is committed to them. Okay, now, verses 3 and 4 expands this further. Uh, The redemptive covenantal love of God for his people expanded in verses 3 and 4. Let me read these verses again. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are honored and I love you. Uh, Did I miss a phrase there? Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Now, my friends, this is a really sobering passage. I, I hope you know this about the Bible. There are many times when we come across things that are at least at first and maybe for a long time very difficult. And this is one of those texts. And it's wrapped up in the love of God. I mean, this is what, you know, uh, Don Carson wrote a very good book, if you want to get a hold of this uh, later, that really relates to what we're talking about here. The, The title of the book is The Difficult Doctrine of... What do you suppose the end of the title is? The Difficult Doctrine of Hell, right? No, that's not it. Now, that's a difficult doctrine, but that's not this book. The difficult doctrine of divine judgment. No. The difficult doctrine of the love of God. That's the title of the book, and it's a very helpful book. Short, easy to read, and one I would highly commend. The context here is the love of God, and yet what it says is astonishing and, 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 and surprising in ways that are difficult to see. Now, look with me at this. First of all, God again declares who he is. I am the Lord, Yahweh, the the covenant God of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So again, I mean, how how much (laughs) he wants them to see his commitment to them, to their well-being, to their salvation. 
not to everyone in the whole world, but to them. Do they get this? It's like, Jody, I love you. Do you get it? I mean you. That's different than anyone else. Do you see that? I mean, most Christians don't see this. And it's sad because this is the heart of the love of God for his people. So do you get this, Israel? I am committed to you. You are my people. I am your savior. Now, what does he do to, to bring, bring about their place as his people? Well, there is a price of redemption that is indicated here. And it is the cost of the lives of others. Look, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba, those are regions to the south of Egypt at the, at the base of the Nile River. Uh, it's, uh, it's part of Egypt. So it's another way of saying Egypt again. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Now, what is he referring to here? Well, it's got to be the Exodus, doesn't it? I mean, this, this is referring back to what God did in the Exodus, that he, in fact, favored the people of God, Israel, in a way that he did not favor the Egyptians. Correct? Yeah, you remember when, when God first told Moses to go back into Egypt and be his servant through, through whom he would bring deliverance to the people of Israel, he told Moses, this is in Exodus chapter 4. You can look at it later if you want. But in Exodus 4, before Moses even goes back, he said, I want you to go back and say, let my people go, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart and I will kill the firstborn in Egypt in order that I might show my favor for my firstborn Israel. So this is before God even sends Moses back there. He declares this is his intention, is to show his favor to Israel by what? By sparing them the very death that he will bring to the Egyptian households. And so it is, as the story continues. Moses does go back, and you'll remember the, the ten plagues that come upon, uh, upon the people of Egypt. And every one of those plagues, who is spared? Israel. Israel is spared the very difficulties that come to Egypt. But here, here comes then the last plague. This is the worst one. This, this is the one that finally culminates in Pharaoh says, saying, get out of here. I don't want to see you again. It is <clears throat> the plague where God sends the angel of death who comes and passes over the homes of the Israelites. Why? Why, why does he pass over their homes? And this is why they celebrate Passover yet to this day, in, at least in Orthodox Jewish homes. Why does he pass over those homes? Because God told them, take an animal, a lamb, slit its throat, take the blood of that animal, put it over the doorposts of your house so that when the angel of death comes, he will see the blood and will pass over your homes. And then he will go to Egypt in which he will kill the firstborn of every single a home in Egypt, every single stable in Egypt, all the firstborn in Egypt will be killed from Pharaoh on down. Question. Who told the Israelites to, to slaughter an animal and put the blood on the doorposts of their house? Who told them that? 
God did, right? Second question, could God have told the Egyptians the same thing? Of course he could. And it, I mean, goodness, I mean, did, did all this happen and after it happened, God go, oh, shucks, I forgot. I, I should, you know, I should have mentioned this to the Egyptians too, you know. No, this was purposive. This was intentional to display what? To display his favor for Israel against the backdrop of the judgment that came to the Egyptians. Now, now listen carefully. You know, some people in relation to the Jacob Esau statement in Romans 9.11, Romans 9.13, Jacob, have I loved Esau, have I hated, try, try to say that, well, it was because of something about Jacob and something about Esau that made the difference. But of course, verse 11 rules that out before the two were born, before either had done anything good or bad. Okay, something similar is true here. Some might say, well, the reason God favored the Israelites and brought judgment upon the Egyptians was because of the relative moral difference between the idolatry that was taking place in Egypt and the fact that Israel were the people of God who, who were worshiping God. I mean, that's the difference. It is the moral, the moral state of life between those two different peoples. Turn to Ezekiel 20. I want you to see this yourself. We learn something in Ezekiel 20 that we don't know from the Exodus account itself. And it is an amazing uh, revelation to us of what life was like among the Israelites that God delivered from Egypt. Pick up, pick up with me at verse 4. Ezekiel 20, verse 4. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Now, the, the context here is Ezekiel is so fed up with the sin of Israel in his day in Ezekiel's day, many, many centuries later after the Exodus, he's so fed up with them that he says, God, judge them. Bring judgment upon them. They, they are deserving of your judgment. And God's response is, you want me to judge them now? Guess what? They've always been this way. They've always been rebellious. Let, let me take you back to, to another time when they were rebellious against me. So make, make them know their, the abomination of their fathers. Verse 5, say to them, thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had stretched, selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all the lands. Now look at this next verse, verse 7. I said to them, cast away each of you, the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Now stop there. What what is he saying? He is indicating that the Israelites in Egypt had adopted the idolatrous practices of the Egyptians, that they were every bit as much idolaters as the Egyptians were. And God told them, quit this. Turn from those idols. Come back to me. And they would not do it. So what did God want to bring upon them? Look at the rest of this verse. Verse 8. Then I resolved, this is God speaking, Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, 
to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. They deserved the very judgment he brought upon the Egyptians for their idolatry because they too were idolatrous and deserving of his judgment. So why didn't he judge them? Keep reading. But here we are back to Ephesians 2, 4 again. I mean, you know, isn't it incredible? God's final word to his people is not a word of judgment, but a word of restoration. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness and gave them statutes and ordinances and so on. I won't keep reading. He goes on and and lists all the things that he did that benefited them, that that showed his love and favor for them, that that spared them the the destruction they deserved. Okay, now get the point here, my friends. Why, Why did God not bring the judgment upon them? Because morally... There was a moral difference between Egypt and the Israelites? Are you kidding? They were equally deserving of judgment. So why didn't he bring on Israel the judgment they deserved every bit as much as the judgment the Egyptians deserved? Because he had committed himself to them. When he says, for the sake of my name, he has in mind, I have pledged myself to these people. You will be my people, not you know, if, if you feel like it, if, you, if you're uh, up to it, you know, if, if you want to do it, uh, I, I'd, I'd really like you to be my people. No, this was an unconditional covenant of God. You will be my people. I will be your God. So God has staked his name on bringing about among the people of Israel his people who are holy to him. By the way, this is why the new covenant is in the Bible. Because under the old covenant, I will bless you if you obey me. I will curse you if you disobey me. What did they do? Disobeyed. What must God do? Curse. And if that's that's it, there's no future for those people because they deserve his judgment. So the only way that God can make them his people is if he works in them the very obedience they are unwilling to render. I will put my law in your heart. On your heart, I will write it. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. So the the new covenant is actually established with Israel precisely because God will not go back on his word. You will be my people. I will be your God. So I will work in you to make you the people you don't want to be. The obedient, holy people you have rejected being over and over and over. I will make you those people, says God. Okay, so that's, this is the covenant commitment of God. Why has he favored Israel? <laughs> he loves them. In fact, let's let, go back to Isaiah 43. Here is the answer this passage gives us. Does he favor them because they deserve it? No. Does he favor them because they're less deserving of judgment than Egypt? No. Why does he favor them? Look with me, verse 4. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. There it is. 
I, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. My friends, it's, it's, an, it's an amazing uh, concept that you see in the Bible. It's displayed in the Exodus, and it's displayed finally on the final day of judgment, heaven and hell, where God has so designed his saving grace to be manifest against the backdrop of just judgment against sin. There is something about the display of judgment that provides the basis for understanding the greatness and the glory of his merciful salvation for sinners who deserve the very judgment they got. But in his mercy, he saves them. This is Romans 9, 22 and 23. Do you remember those verses from the Apostle Paul? What if God, although willing to, 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 to uh, let's see, how does it go now? What if God, although willing to, to be patient with vessels of wrath that he prepared, that were prepared before for destruction, he did this in order to demonstrate his mercy upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So here, here you have this principle that you see in the Bible. It surely will be the case in the final judgment, and it was the case in the Exodus. You see it there. The greatest saving event of God in the Old Testament is the Exodus. And what do you see? The purposeful salvation of people who deserve judgment against the backdrop of the judgment of people who deserve judgment. All of them deserve judgment. I mean, isn't that true for us who will be in heaven forever with the Lord? What do we deserve? We are children of wrath even as the rest. Ephesians 2, 3. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. My, my goodness, friends, this is just astonishing. The greatest display of God's love can only be seen against the backdrop of his just judgment of sin. And we see that in the Exodus, and we see it lived out in, in the, the, the final judgment that will take place. Now, let me just make, make one more comment on the Exodus. One more comment. Just to, again, I just, I mean, this is the Bible, my friends. This is the Bible. So think biblically. It didn't, it didn't end with just the angel of death that passes over the, the homes of the Israelites and brings death to the firstborn among Egypt, right? It didn't end there. Remember what happened next. So Pharaoh says, get out of here. So Egypt, Israel leaves. And they, they, as they leave, they come up against the Red Sea. And, and they can't go any further. And, uh, and Pharaoh changes his mind. Hey, we're losing all this free slave labor. That was really dumb, you know, Pharaoh concludes. We shouldn't have done that. So he goes after them with his army. And, and God puts a, a cloud of protection between the Egyptian army and the Israelites who were up against the Red Sea and tells Moses, raise your staff, Moses. So Moses raises his staff and through the night he parts the Red Sea so that in the morning Israel can go across on dry land to the other side of the sea. Then God lifts the cloud, right? After they're already on the other side, and the Egyptians, the Egyptian army, sees the pathway that's there. And so they take off after Israel. What happens next? Moses raises his staff on the other side of the, the Red Sea. 
By whose order? God's. God says, Moses, raise your staff. And what happens when Moses raises his staff on the other side of the sea? The waters come over and kill every single Egyptian soldier. Bodies floating on the water. And the Song of Moses in in, uh, Exodus 15 celebrates the fact that they saw all of the enemies of Israel drowned in the Red Sea. You have to ask yourself this question. Why did it happen this way? And the answer is because God designed it this way. To display what? I mean, could, could he have saved the Egyptians too? Could he have kept the waters parted? Could he, have, could, could he have told them also to put blood over the doorposts of their... Of course, of course, of course. But he didn't on purpose. Why? To display his favor for his own people. You are precious in my sight. I love you. Therefore, I give other people in exchange for your life. It's an amazing thing. Well, the redemptive covenantal love for his people that saves them when they deserve judgment is is incredible. Now we move on. Verses 5 and 6, the redemptive covenantal pledge to his people extended. Now it's not only to them, but to the next generation. Look again, verses 5 and 6. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters. Look how intimate that is. My sons, my daughters from the ends of the earth. God's covenant commitment to his people is the basis for the opening admonition. Do not fear. I am with you. And that repeats what was stated earlier back in verse 2. I am with you, so don't fear. But now God's covenant commitment to his people is extended from the generation of the Exodus to those who will be in exile later. I mean, what he anticipates in this verse is the people of Israel who are saved at the Exodus have children who are disobedient. And what will those disobedient people, uh, what, what will happen to those disobedient Israelites? God will judge them with the exile. So the Assyrians come against the northern kingdom. The Babylonians come against the southern kingdom and take them away from Palestine, from the land of Israel. But God's final word to his people is not a word of judgment. It is rather a word of restoration. So what will he do with those exiles? Will he leave them in exile and say, I'm done with you? No, he will bring them back to the land. He will make them his people in the land that he gave to them. So he says to them, I will go after you. I I will bring you back. Notice the certainty of this by by two times indicating I will in verses 5 and 6. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. This is the divine commitment to do this. Nothing will stop God from from bringing it about. Notice the extensiveness of this salvation that will take place. East, west, north, south, from the ends of the earth. There is no place where my people have gone where I will not reach and bring them back, says the Lord. 
So he will accomplish what he has pledged. You will be my people and I will be your God. And, and just when you see this, my last point on the bottom of that, or my, my page, yours are different, but in that last bullet point, notice the complexity of God's relationship with his people. Through the prophet Isaiah, God on the one hand warns the people of the certainty of, of upcoming judgment and exile. You can look at some of those passages if you like. While at the same time, he promises ultimate deliverance, redemption, salvation, and future restoration. And you can look at those passages. I mean, both of those are the messages of the prophets to the people of Israel. On the one hand, God will bring judgment upon you. Assyria will come. Babylon will come. You will receive harsh judgment from God. But the final word of God to his people is not that word of judgment. The final word is, I will bring you back. Because they deserve it? No, a thousand times, no. It's because God has pledged himself to them in his love. Finally, last verse, verse 7, the redemptive covenantal end for his people extolled. Look again, verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made, he says. Why in the end are these saved? Why are these the objects of God's kind and gracious restoration and forgiveness and final salvation? And here the answer relates to the phrase, everyone who is called by my name. Now catch the significance here. Back in verse 1, these people were called by name. Do you remember that? Called by name. In fact, uh, I, I, I neglected to point this out. In verse 1, look, look again. Let me, let's go back to verse 1 just for a minute. In verse 1, he says, But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Do you get it? Who was renamed by God? Jacob was renamed Israel by God. Right? So I named you Israel. So he extends that, that principle of I name you as my, my people. He extends that to all of his people. I have called you by name. So verse 1 is like, let me just let me liken it to my name, which is Bruce Ware. Bruce is what my parents call me. I am called by name Bruce. Now verse 7, I will call you by my name. Where is being called by my dad's name. I bear his name in my name. Do you see it? So I am Bruce, called by name. Where, called by his name. So here is God who calls us by name, intimate, personal, familial, close, loving, tender, jurisdiction over. But then, can you believe it, my friends? This is even more shocking. He calls us by His name. We bear His name. Unbelievable. We who do not deserve any kindness from Him are granted the kindness of bearing 
His name, whom I have called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. My, what an amazing thing that He gives to us as our most fundamental identity, our relationship with Him. We bear His name. We are His people. We are wares. We are gods. I don't know what name to call that. You know, we are God's people. Boy, remember that as you relate to other people, as you talk to others, as you, as you share uh, your lives with other people, that you are representing in that the name of God with others. And then he indicates the end for which we have been created. Now, this is not, this is not Genesis 1 creation again, Right? Again, don't don't generalize this, that everything fits this category, but it it relates in a particular way to his own people, whom I have created for my glory. So they have been made his people that they might in a unique way bring glory to him, exalt his excellencies as they are the recipients of undeserved, uh, uh, unmerited kindness lavishly given to them. In ways, my friends, we cannot even contemplate at this moment, right? If we just knew for a moment the whole, through through all of eternity, the whole of what God has designed for us, his people, to receive from him, all undeserved, we would be embarrassed at the lavish kindness of God. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us how much? All things, says Paul in Romans 8.32. So, now last, last point on this section. How shall we live for his glory? And our answer takes us back to the beginning of our study. They will live to his glory as they, sorry, as they embrace the particular redemptive covenantal love shown them totally apart from any supposed merit of their own, that he has created them, called them, saved them as the objects of God's deepest and most profound love expressed within all of creation. Only as we embrace our election by God, our being called specially to be his people, can we enter into the fullness of His saving love, His redemptive covenantal love that He has for His own exclusively. Only then can we live to His glory knowing the extent and the richness of this love. So my friends, let let me conclude by just an admonition. When you think of the love of God, which is, as I said at the beginning, it, it is the stock and trade concept that is out there in our culture. If there's anything true about God, ask the man in the street. God is love. The the problem with the common understanding of this is it fails to see the most developed, deepest, most profound expression of the love of God. And that is his love for his own. His love that would choose them before the foundation of the world. His love that would 
predestined them to adoption before the foundation of the world. His love that would send his son to die for them that they would be saved. By the way, footnote, I don't hold to limited atonement. I I hold that God's love for the world is expressed in the death of Christ for the world. But I also hold that when Christ died on the cross, he knew all the Father had given to him, and he knew his death would save those whom the Father had chosen and had given to him. So his death was very specifically in one very important sense, a death for the elect. There's no doubt about that. It's just that it wasn't just that, in my view. But he he died for the elect. He died. uh, uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ. Loved the church and gave himself for her. And this love of God, demonstrated in eternity past, brought about in history, will never end for you if you are his. Why? Why will you always be the recipient of his favor and kindness and blessing? Why? Because he loves you as his own children. So revel in the love of God rightly understood. Yes, there is a sense in which God loves all people. He gives rain to the just and the unjust. We all have air to breathe at this moment. I mean, I think of this when I hear someone curse, use the name of God in vain. They, they did that with breath God gave them at that very moment. They use that breath to curse God's name. So, you know, there is a sense in which God loves all people. And the death of Christ, in my judgment, is the supreme display of that as he dies for the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. But, yes, that is true, but the love of God for his own is just remarkably intimate, tender, and and gloriously uh, rich and full in what it brings about. So revel in the love of God, which is your confidence that you are his forever, and that all that he has designed for you will be yours because he loves you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning to reflect again on on truths that are so glorious and wondrous. And and in some ways, Lord, they really do challenge uh, our, our common ways of thinking. But Lord, we pray that your word would prevail over our intuitions, over the, the, the sense we have of, what, of how things ought to be, that rather your word would correct us and we, think we, we see things as they are because you declare them this way. So Lord, help us to understand what your love truly is and to bask in it as people who are just amazed that you would care for us and love us this way. We pray this with hope and expectation because we know, Lord, you want this to happen in us. You want us to know you and to revel in your love. So we, we know you will work this in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.